Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Welcome to Morning Moments with Maya. Conversations of love and laughter. The show where each week, your host, healthcare administrator and certified humor professional, Maya Aziz, invites someone who is out there pushing the positive to join her for a heartfelt and often hilarious coffee conversation about love, laughter, leadership and, well, life. Love and laughter might not cure what ails you, but they sure go a long way to getting you through those tough life moments. So sit back, pour yourself a cup, and get ready to laugh and learn today on Morning Moments. Look for the good. It is all around. It sure is. And good morning. This is your host, Maya Aziz, coming to you live from Montreal this December 4th, 2016. December 4th, it is National Sock Day, not to be confused with May 8th, National No Sock Day, or May 9th, National Lost Sock Day. No, this is about those socks that stay together over time, which in my house is a miracle quite worthy of celebration indeed. It is also, believe it or not, National Cookie Day, and I'm just putting it out there. If I could get a pair of those, I would be a very happy camper. Over the last few weeks, we have spoken about a whole range of elements that impact workplace culture and our experience of work, our motivation, our attitudes, work-life balance, how we find a personal sense of meaning. Today, we're going to be talking about an element that maybe trumps all of those, integrity. These days, no matter what field or industry you work in, we are increasingly finding ourselves in cultures where, as a result, I guess, of things like tighter budgets, increased competition, external restrictions, we spend a lot of our daytime hours talking about things like performance indicators and productivity and efficiency. We're doing lean processes, questioning are we achieving the highest quality of practice or product with what we have? And these are all really essential topics in the work world. But isn't it interesting how we spend much less time talking about how we do this? What are our values? Do we conduct ourselves and our businesses in ethical and honest ways? Are we authentic in our interactions with each other? And yet when problems arise, if we look deeply enough, maybe it's these values that so influence the outcome. C.S. Lewis wrote, Integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. It's maybe less about what we do or what we achieve than who we are. And this morning, I am so pleased to be able to share a conversation with a guest who holds integrity as a core value, not only for herself, but for whole nations. Deborah Norwood is an attorney, writer, public speaker, and World Laughter Tour certified laughter leader who has dedicated her life's work to advocacy for minority rights and against women's discrimination and child labor practices. 
She's a former international humanitarian law instructor for the Mid-South Chapter of the American Red Cross and currently serves on the board of Human Friends International, a not-for-profit interfaith harmony and human rights organization for whom she chairs the section on gender and child labor law. Ms. Norwood is a member of the Tennessee Bar Association and chair for Women in the Law, a faith-based program for women attorneys, and she is the host of not one, but two internet radio shows, Look Good, Feel Good, which is a segment of Your True Colors Image Radio, and the bilingual Mi Vida. And with such commitment to advocating for all that is good and ethical in the world, I could not hope for a more perfect person to share this morning's conversation about integrity in the workplace. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Maya. Thank you. I'm overwhelmed with your beautiful accolades. I may have to have to actually live up to all this, don't I? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. I'm so glad you could join me this morning. You know, this is a topic that um, I've been thinking a lot about lately, not just because of, you know, things I see in the workplace and as I'm recruiting new staff, these are some of the things that I'm thinking about. But of course, in our larger world, these questions of integrity, um, be it in politics or, or actions of nations, I think is becoming more and more a, a top-of-mind topic. Yes, it's, it's absolutely. And, and yet, I'm going to warn you, Maya, that my uh, take on, on integrity in the workplace may be a little um, out of sync with what the workplace is actually believing is the proper approach to, to integrity. Um, I think that... Um, I'm going to be a kind of a dissenting voice on some of the uh, tactics that are used uh, on testing for integrity, for one thing, and um, also on why it gets confusing when we tell people that all you have to do is be in touch with your core values before you can be you can actually have integrity. Um, I, I think I'm going to be a I'm going to be a lone wolf howling at the wind a little bit, but at the same time, there, I think I've got enough empirical research and neuroscience behind some of the stuff that we'll be talking about so that we can uh, look into integrity with a little bit more, more of a, you know, less romantic eye than, than, than everybody's looking at it. Um, you know, we as attorneys are suffering as a profession right now. We're the fourth profession leading in suicide. And, um, you know, attorneys are, are going through all kinds of introspection, all the American Bar Association, you know, large professional groups are looking into, well, why is this happening? Why are attorneys losing that resilience? Or why, why is there so much um, absenteeism and alcoholism and all these things in our profession? And it isn't just our profession, but I think using lawyers as, a, as an example of the angst that is out there in professional leadership uh, might actually help us, you know, get down to the core of what does it mean to be to have integrity? What does it mean to be authentic? What does it mean to be aligning your core values with, with what you're trying to do? So I think it's going to be an interesting perspective coming from, you know, a brain health coach and um, an attorney and also someone who's trying to work very hard at peace building. Because no matter what you want to call me, I call myself a peace builder. 
I love that. I love that peace builder. Um, and, and it's exactly because of your, your lone wolf um, insight that I am so excited to have you on, actually, Deborah. And maybe we need to start for listeners to describe a little bit what we're even talking about. So what, what is this integrity that you're referring to? Well, I mean, a lot of people try to um, equate integrity with honesty. And, uh, and, and that, may be, that may be a factor. Um, what's happening out there in the world right now is that um, there's a lot of workplace theft going on. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of absenteeism. There's a lot of all, uh, all kinds of problems that are not allowing people to be affected when they're at work. And um, so now for the first time in, in a kind of corporate setting, they're starting to look into you know, what does this mean? Why are people losing the ability to do what they have to do in their jobs correctly? Why isn't there, you know, a 30-year dedication to your work? And so they're looking at the word integrity as the reasons behind why people are having trouble. Integrity in, in general is, is how to become whole. It's, you know, it's, it's based out of, out of a, I guess, a Latin word that says, I'm going to be whole, and I'm going to be whole because I will be uh, aligning my inter- inner self with my outer self so that I will a- operate with uh, wholeness in everything that I do. And so that's kind of like the root of what integrity is. It's a combination. It encompasses honesty. It encompasses, you know, dedication. It com- encompasses perseverance, accountability. It encompasses all of that. So it's, you know, way beyond even just being honest. Definitely. And it's interesting the way you describe it. Um, the honesty element of it um, is perhaps more about being honest with yourself um, in terms of who you are completely or wholly, as you say, um, and being that whole self in the workplace. Uh, that's right. And, and what's happening in the workplace, because, you know, we're talking about HR, you know, people hiring and firing practices, you know, looking for people who are going to come and stay and work with you. You've got the millennial generation conflict. You've got all kinds of things going on in the workplace. And so they're trying to kind of narrow down the kind of people they want to hire and fire and keep. And actually, you know, they're creating things like workplace productivity uh, profiles. And they're testing people for integrity. They're actually saying, okay, let's, if you, you want to work for us, let's find out what kind of a person you're going to be. Are you going to... Um, are you going to be the kind of person that we need in our company? And uh, I've got a statistic for you, Maya. It's estimated that employee theft costs U.S. businesses between 15 to $25 billion a year. And Whoa. so as a result, yeah, yeah. As a result, about 40% of U.S. employers use integrity as part of their employee screening process. And uh, this is generally called a WPP workplace productivity um, profile. And um, the workplace productivity profiles are measuring conscientiousness, perseverance, integrity, honesty, attitudes towards theft, that kind of stuff. So, wow. I mean, that statistic is enormous. I never would have guessed that. And I think it's perhaps a little bit um, more of a trend in the United States than it is up here in Canada. Canada. But I'm interested, so they're spending all this money on these tests, and if I'm understanding kind of what you're saying underneath, maybe this is not 
the best way to do it. I, I mean, I have some strong feelings about it. Obviously, I come from a plaintiff's employee. You know, my husband's an employment attorney, and we come from the plaintiff's perspective rather than the corporate perspective. That doesn't mean that I don't understand what corporations are struggling with. As a matter of fact, I do an awful lot of um, resilience training with companies, and so I'm I'm not an enemy. I'm not an enemy to um, <laughs> these things. But at the same time, yes, I, I think uh, – I think testing for honesty and looking for um, looking for who's the problem as opposed to what's the solution is definitely not the proper approach in leadership, in true leadership. And with regards to um, attorneys, you know, because I do a lot of attorney coaching and also am penetrating the, you know, the large market. You know, right now we have mega firms now that are that contain almost 500 uh, attorneys per per uh, firm or, or more, you know, these are called the mega law firms. Well, they're also becoming a corporate structure as well. And you know the reputation that we as lawyers have, you know, we've got this horrible <laughs> reputation out there. As a matter of fact, toxic jokes about lawyers abound. When I talk about these principles, I'm not talking about just in a corporate setting. I'm talking about also with regards to professional settings and leadership. Yes, because it applies uh, in any field, which is why it's such an interesting topic. I found it interesting what you were saying, Deborah, about how perhaps testing for the problem is not the way to go about it, but we should be more looking for the solution. Very much a, a strength-based leadership kind of principle. But maybe That's before right. we get into the how, why does this matter? I mean, why does integrity even matter so much um, in, in the workplace and particularly for leaders in the workplace? Well, I think the reason it's become, well, for one thing, it's become important because of the amount of theft that's going on in the world. I think it's also important because of the amount of um, difficulty that uh, corporations are having in retaining uh, young millennials. So I think there's a generational issue that's going to come up on, on how to keep millennials uh, working for uh, corporations and and for uh, law firms that have had troubles. and. And then lastly, it's it's just as simply a question of, you know, being able to get things accomplished in a in a uh, collaborative or corporate setting. Um, you know, there's this there's there's this understanding. For example, lawyers. You know, a lot of this is perception, public perception. And I'm writing a book called The Resilient Lawyer: Overcoming uh, Challenges and Finding Joy in Modern Day Law Practice. And we're joining forces with all kinds of uh, people all over the world, you know, to help lawyers find their find their center and be able to do their job and, and align themselves with whatever it makes to make their jobs joyful. Because if you're joyful in your work, then you actually can do your work well. And one of the one one of the things that we do, of course, we're because we are uh, humorous as you are, we we can't help but put in all the funny little hats that lawyers have to wear. And so in our presentations around the around the bar associations and companies that we go to, we talk about the different hats that uh, people must wear. And, of course, the juggler is the big one. And, um, and so when you start juggling so many things, you end up uh, actually making mistakes. You end up looking in many ways dishonest. And uh, we have one of our roles is honest aides. And we use him as a, you know, tongue-in-cheek perfect model 
of what an attorney is supposed to be or even just a person. And I think uh, Honest Abe is, is a great model to follow. And I wanted to give you a quote that um, Abraham Lincoln actually said about lawyers. He said, there is a vague popular belief that lawyers are necessarily dishonest. I say vague because when we consider to the extent confidence and honors are reposed in and conferred upon lawyers by people, it appears improbable that their impression of dishonesty is distinct and vivid. He's basically saying, oh, come on. You know, you want everybody to use, try to say lawyers are dishonest, but at the same time you're spending all your time pretty much trusting lawyers, right? And then, <laughs> and then he goes on to say, yet the impression is common, almost universal. Let no man choosing the law for a calling for a moment yield to the popular belief. Resolve to be honest at all events. And if in your own judgment you cannot be an honest lawyer, resolve to be honest without being a lawyer. <laughs> choose, some, <laughs> choose some other occupation rather than the one in choosing which you do, which in advance you would consent to be a knave. So he's basically saying, okay, y'all think lawyers are dishonest, but you're putting a lot of trust in them. And trust and, and integrity and trust and honesty are very very much related, aren't they? And then he goes on to say, no matter what you choose to do, if you're going to be a lawyer, choose to be an honest lawyer. But if you're going to be in some other occupation, choose to still be honest. Because no matter what it is, don't consent to be a knave. Don't consent to be a person who's, you know, abusing and overtaking other people. So I love this quote. And it kind of shows you why we love putting on that big so top hat on people and saying, Hey, if you're going to be anybody in the world, why don't you try to be more like Honest Abe? <laughs> I love it. I love it. What, and what a great vivid uh, image of it as well. Um, and, you know, it's, <laughs> that that quote is so good because it's true. I mean, it's such a misconception, misconception or, a you know, a historic kind of um, faux description of lawyers as being dishonest. I mean, the the ones that I personally know are some of the most ethical, um, hardworking, honest people that are out there. That is the field. But like other, but just like in company settings, we're trying to codify integrity. We're trying to we're trying to do the same thing with our board of ethics and our board of professional responsibility in telling people how to. Um, you know, how to conduct themselves. And so I think what we're, when we really go down to the bottom of it, if you want the lone wolf theory here, is, um, you know, how much are we deceiving ourselves when we try to put in on paper how, to, how other people need to conduct themselves? You know, um, when, we're, when we're trying to test for integrity, I mean, when we're trying to test for honesty, I can see if you're going to be working in a corporate setting or even in a in a warehouse where, you know, you don't want, thousands and thousands of dollars worth worth of materials to be stolen, you might could look into, you know, people's probabilities of um, of stealing or not being honest. But I think they're discounting something very, very important, and that is the culture that the company is in. And mm-hmm. I think they're going out uh, on the peace-building profile or the pyramid. They're, they're going about it diff- in, a, in a wrong approach. There's a book that I spend all my life reading, and I read it over and over again, and it's by Terry Warner, and it's called The Bonds That Make Us Free. And um, I think one of the best corporate um, models for trust building in a company 
comes from an organization called uh, the Arbinger Institute. And they tell us that we're doing this wrong. We're totally trying to teach and correct people. And uh, correction is at the very top of the pyramid. It's like the last thing that we need to try to do is to correct people's behavior. What we have to do is uh, work really hard about listening and learning and establishing a relationship with people to see whether or not or why people are having difficulties um, doing what they have to do it in the um, in the workplace. So I think in our in our uh, AATH group we've got someone that says you don't want to be funny, you want to see funny. So I'm going to take that comment and I'm going to move it around and it says we don't want to make people be truthful. We want to see the truth truthfully. Mm, nice. And, and Deborah, you're definitely speaking my language. Uh, you know, you're convincing me that it's really about starting. It's, it's more about building a culture of integrity than testing for it individually or correcting it and trying to find a problem when it exists. Um, so you, you've definitely convinced me that there's a different way of looking at it. But how do we do that? How do we actually sort of build um, a culture that is more honest and, and holds those values? Well, I mean, you know, two, two questions I would ask a company when they would come to me and say, well, we, we need a trust-building exercise. We need to get, you know, we need to work collaboratively. Can you please come and help us? Because I talk about creating an, an unorthodox conflict resolution model when I walk into a place. And I, and I talk about, you know, trust-building exercises and doing all kinds of fun stuff, including therapeutic laughter to kind of loosen people up and, and help people to um, operate more on a, on a person-to-person level, you know, than, than, than a corporate invective or something that's, that's just coming down hard on them. And uh, so when I walk into a workplace and I find that there isn't a lot of trust and that you can cut the tension in a place with a knife, then um, what good is an integrity test in that workplace when it might not even reward its whistleblowers, you know? I mean, mm. you've, got, you've got companies that want everybody to be honest, they want everybody to be truthful, but at the same time they don't want you to, you know, turn them in if they're not doing things, you know, policies that are, that are, that are not working well in the company, and they don't want to know in reality if, if this department is working as well as another department. So my motto when I go into these situations is not to work so hard in finding the fault in others, but to try to see how we can make things go right. So I'm not talking about looking for that perfect person or that perfect individual that should be working for you because there is no such thing. And that's where brain health um, my ideas of brain health really come into the picture. Tell me more about that. Well, uh, you know, I cannot talk about other people, but I certainly can talk about myself. I consider myself an honest person, but sometimes I wear that juggler hat, okay? And that juggler hat is a ridiculous hat. It's got a lot of bells on it. And, you know, the only way I can keep myself grounded it's if I'm grounded in some sort of integrity and I look above the horizon to what my last will and testament, and Steve Wilson calls it his last will and testament, you know, which is your long-term <laughs> objective of what you want to become in your life. 
Because when you start juggling a lot of things around, you can't help but be dishonest. You can't help but make a mistake. You can't help but committing to something that you're not going to follow through on because, you know, you're not doing a good job of of balancing things. Now, does that mean that you have no integrity? I mean, if Deborah Norwood tells you that she's going to um, talk to you, um, does does, does that mean that uh, she's going to talk to you at 10 o'clock in the morning and then one morning she wakes up and she didn't make that phone call? Does that mean she doesn't have integrity or does that mean that maybe – the day that she made that promise, she was, you know, over-focused, over-worked, and over, over-extended and maybe shouldn't have made the promise to begin with, you know. Um, are we talking about core value here? Are you talking about a basically bad human being? Or maybe just someone whose brain is so overtaxed that you can't quite accomplish everything that you want to accomplish? Oh, Deborah, I feel like you've been watching me or something. <laughs> 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 I mean, I, I can relate to that. We're so quick to we, oh, are we oh, ever? Are we ever? But how does someone, I mean, tell me how concretely, how do we change that? Because I, I, I think that increasingly in many workplaces, the demands are just getting ridiculous. And the expectations are so unrealistic for so many people that they feel this pressure, as you say, to juggle all these things they're being told that they have to juggle. And then exactly as you describe, you know, some of those balls get dropped. And then, of course, the human reaction around is to judge them for that. What do we do to shift that? What do we do to change that? Um, You know, I mean, these these are all leadership problems, aren't they? They really don't have anything to do with the workers. And and so you have to change the leadership mentality. You have to change what's going on, you know, in the top echelons and whether or not they're really listening to the people that they're trying to correct. That's why that pyramid of peace, peacemaking, I think, is a beautiful pyramid. Because if you have a relationship with the people that you're working with and you are listening and learning from them, then you will get out of this um, blame uh, game that everybody gets involved in. Uh, and you'll start, and you'll start looking at, at at the truth. But I'm going to tell you, there's a big danger in all of this, uh, Maya, and that is we haven't even come close to talking about conscience. We haven't even come close to talking about, you know, what could possibly uh, damage a person's perception of right and wrong to the point where we're actually deceiving ourselves into believing that we're in a in, in a right path. And that is the crux of everything that I love um, about the brain and everything that I love about the Arbinger program and everything that I love about most of the philosophies and, and interfaith, um, you know, ideas that I have picked up throughout these years because every culture in the world values honesty, but at the same time it talks about a light within us that sometimes can actually die out and uh, make a truth and honesty a lie. Therefore, when you get to that point where that little light in you can twist the truth and twist um, what's going on to such a point, you can justify just about any behavior, including genocide. So are we talking about conscience here when we talk about integrity? 
I mean, we have to be talking about that as well. Um, it's so it's so tied, and that I mean that is such an interesting point to bring up, and goes back to what we started by talking about how um, this you know when people talk about integrity, they they say on automatically, oh, honesty, and we're really talking about honesty with yourself. But as you say, there can be a moment where that gets really difficult. I mean, what are what are some of the you know, you've mentioned, obviously, the extreme um, versions of that. But in a regular workplace, how would that sort of present in terms of someone having lost that conscience? Can you describe well, you know, that? It's, it's, almost like, it's almost like not losing your conscience as much as you're blind to it. You're blind to the truth that's in front of you. That's why we talk a lot about seeing truth, seeing truth as it really is. If um, and, and there's a beautiful book called Leadership and Self-Deception. I strongly recommend it for anybody who's a, a person who wants to lead others because it, it's, a, it's a real slap in the face as to, as to what leadership really is all about. Um, I would use an example, and I, I use it just, it's, a, it's an Arbinger example, so I'm not, I'm not making this up. Just imagine you just being married to someone and, uh, you know, you wake up in the morning and your spouse, you get in the in the bathroom, and there's towels, wet towels all over the floor because your spouse just left the, the shower, right? <laughs> and, you know, you look at the wet towels. <laughs> you look at the wet towels, and you pick them up, and you put them in the hamper. And when you do that, nothing happens, right? I mean, you basically picked up the towels, put them in the hamper, and went about your business in the bathroom. Um, that is having a heart at peace. That is what my good friend Ezekiel Sanchez in the Anasazi Foundation that does a lot of work with um, at-risk behavioral problems with youth. It's an inpatient program in Arizona. That's where they talk about being at heart at peace. You're not at war with anybody. So you you pick up the towel and put it in the hamper and you move on with your business. The day goes on. But if you look at those towels and you go, oh, my gosh. (laughs) Not again. You have got to be kidding me. This is ridiculous. How many times have I had to, and I'm going to use a man because I'll use my husband, you know, do I have to tell them, although I hate to tell you this, Maya, it's usually me, but uh, how many times do I have to tell this guy to, you know, not leave all this trash on the floor, okay? So you start off with that, and the next thing you know, it's so quick. It's so sudden. It's um. You know, I never, ever get to have a clean towel when I go in the bathroom. This always happens when I get in the bathroom, okay? So you start going into all this negative thinking and horribleizing, which is really interesting. You start thinking about that person. Now, what are some of the things, Maya, in your mind, you can think about that person who left all those wet towels on the floor? Oh, he's lazy. He never pulls his weight. He doesn't care about all the work that I do. He doesn't appreciate me. I mean, you could go on and on, I'm sure. And isn't that amazing how you suddenly have horribleized a person that which you obviously yeah. maybe 10 years ago decided was a pretty decent folks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then before you know it, you are blaming and you're judging. And then what about the justifications that start coming up? I'm always working. I've never, you know, I do my best. I do this. I do that. And before you know it, this is where we're talking about the self-deception comes in. We're not seeing truth as truth as it is. We are totally internalizing, harbalizing, blaming, and justifying. 
And when we get to that point, we can actually shut out the light. And it's the same with going to work. And, you know, you have a negative Nancy at work, and you just go, oh, my God, every time I come, I just come in with such a great attitude. And then she just ruins my day, you know. And <laughs> and where does that all come from? Where does that all come from? It comes from us betraying this original sense deep within us, this conscience, this light that says, hey, I'm just going to do what's right. You know, and what's right is to pick up the towel, not think, judgmentally about the person or another, maybe later say, file for later, i got to get to work on time, file for later why I want to talk to my husband about not having those towels on the floor anymore. And then just move along. Your day is peaceful, your heart's at peace, you're not at war with people, and you have not justified, blamed, or betrayed yourself. Now, that's how your conscience can totally extinguish itself, and that's how in the beginning you start losing that little light of being able to see other people as people, as human beings that have their own issues. And one of the greatest issues that human beings have are brain health issues. And so if we can look at people, um, there's a wonderful book called This Is Your Brain on Joy, and there's another one that's really beautiful that's called um, This Is Your Brain on Love by Dr. Earl Henslin. And he's a member of our AATH group. And if you look at Dr. Henslin's books, and you look at how he looks at the brain and how he looks at what people are suffering from in the brain, you might see that all these qualities that some people have, like ADD, uh, being inattentive or having, you know, prefrontal cortex problems, which means they can't focus very well or they're not very organized or da-da-da, you know, you're looking at them with a lot less judgment than that evil human being that ruined your life. Oh, wow. Um, So many intelligent concepts that you're throwing out here and things that I'm going to be surely mulling over for a long, long time. And I I love how you just say, um, you know, if we could just uh, just go about our days by saying, you know, I'm going to do what's right with peace in my heart. Um, and not jump to all of this judgment and horribleizing, as you say, which is a great word. Um, what a difference that would make. And yet it's not always easy. I mean, I think the temptation to be pulled into that, uh, you see it every day. Absolutely. And that's why your own brain health, and that's what I talk about. I mean, when I, like, when I said my motto is to not work so hard to find fault in others, but to see how I can make things go right. <laughs> Um, I really mean that. I mean walking into a place and telling people, you know, how's your brain functioning? How are you doing? Are, are, you know, are, you, are you more looking at the details? Are you a happier personality? Um, are you emotional? Are you, you know, look, look at your brain health and decide how are you looking at, at, at the world? Are you able to shift your attention? Can you... Can you, you know, the anterior cingulate gyrate is involved with shifting attention and cooperation and flexibility. You know, aren't those all leadership things that we're having to talk about? And yet there's a part of the brain that we could actually target, we could actually look at, and maybe by, you know, helping that particular part of the brain, we might actually help that kind of behavior. And therefore, we wouldn't spend so much time trying to rule, codify, and fix behavior as much as we could actually find answers to help ourselves 
to become healthier and happier people. That's that's a really interesting kind of a, a flip around when you say that you know you try to not work so hard um, in judging people, etc. And because I sometimes I hear people you know, judging others or oh, this person, you know, she's just not doing uh, the job the way I want her to do it. And I just don't have the time to deal with it. And, and they'll go on and on and on like that. And yet they're taking so much time speaking negatively about them and judging them and feeling, you know, describing how frustrated they are. If we took that time and used it differently, I think is what you're saying. It would actually make a change positively. I mean, I'm even saying, you know, in the larger sense of the leadership of a company, spent a little bit more time doing things that are brain healthy for their people and 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 help, you know, to listen and learn, build relationships, and then they could then teach and communicate what they want to do. But, you know, to be able to correct people, you have to be able to know them and they have to trust you. Mm-hmm. And like Stephen Covey said, to be trustful, to be getting, to get trust from others, you have to be trustworthy yourself. And I use myself as an example all the time because I'm a scattered brain, ADD, you know, anxious brain, like Dr. Hemsworth would probably say. And I'd say a lot of really, really strong professional people have a lot of sense of anxiety. Um, And so I go in and I bring a lot of ideas that you already know about. We talk about gratitude. We talk about meditation. We talk about healthy diets. We talk about you know, co- collaboration and cooperation, and I also give them tests to be able to measure their brain e- efficiencies and efficacies and find out if they need to be, you know, talking to psycho, um, get some psychoanalysis or if they need if they need vitamins and nutrition, if they need exercise, you know. I mean, I really get down to the individual person in their brain, but as a collective, I also talk about, you know, what are we trying to achieve in this peace-building uh, pyramid. What is the goal that we're trying to get, and are we aligning our goals with our actual values? So when a company says, "I don't want theft in, you know, to happen on these lower levels, and I don't want absenteeism, and I don't want this, and I don't want that," but at the same time, they are doing everything in their power to make people so miserable that they don't want to show up for work. And aren't <laughs> they actually creating a culture of absenteeism? You know, a culture of lying, why I can't make it today because it's so miserable to show up at my job. You know, so, you know, this is, this is, this is the essence of honesty and integrity is, you know, what are you trying to accomplish with all your regulating strategies as opposed to what are you trying to accomplish with your relationship strategies? Yes. Yes, yes. And and it's so interesting that you're, you talk about brain health because, you know, there is certainly a trend, I think, in the corporate world now to talk a lot about physical health, right? Everyone's offering Pilates classes and boot camp at lunchtime and um, all of these opportunities, you know, gyms, etc. But we don't talk so much about what we're going to offer in terms of promoting and supporting brain health. So I think that's a really interesting, uh, interesting point. Well, I think you're getting a lot of people like you, Maya, that are that are very interested in the in the positive psychology aspects of resilience and all of that. So I think the corporate setting is changing. You've got you know lots of um, pushes towards um, towards meditation, towards yoga, towards helping people de-stress. You've got Heidi Hanna working really hard to help people you know learn about what stress levels are doing to the body. 
I mean, I think corporations are working, you know, feverishly to try to hit, you know, points that that help in in helping people become a little bit more productive. And that's the whole point. Everybody wants everyone to become more productive, more creative, and more positive, right? <laughs> but, at <the> same, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it isn't a Facebook post where all you can do is just think positive and you're going to turn into this amazing little Pollyanna. It just doesn't work that way, you know? <laughs> Oh, Deborah, you make me laugh because sometimes the the stream of these like positive affirmations that you see on social media just drive me crazy. <laughs> because yeah, and, exactly, and you I can't feel, just read that. Yeah, yeah, I'm guilty of them too. But I always put a little reality, a dose of reality, in all of them <laughs> because you know I I am truly an example of a person who could be viewed by everybody, and I only use myself because honestly, I. I love to use myself as the guinea pig because when I can talk honestly about myself, everybody can nod their head. And so here I am, you know, making all kinds of assertions about what a wonderful resilience trainer I am and what a marvelous, you know, this is good for your health and this is the best thing for your brain. And then the next thing I know, you know, I have some kind of a brain fart or glitch and I don't remember that I promised something or I didn't do something that I said I was going to do. You know, this, writing this book has been the most painful, painful, <laughs> painful <laughs> self-awareness experience that I have ever, ever in my life experienced. Because, I, you know, I have editors, I've got people trying to help me write the book, I've got contributors, and then we've got deadlines, and then there's just me. <laughs> and, you know, I'm supposed to be sitting in front of this computer and I'm supposed to be making, you know, some headway. And my brain sometimes doesn't cooperate. And then a whole pyramid of, you know, not pyramid, but a house of cards starts tumbling, tumbling down because a lot of people who were depending on me or people who trusted me find out that I am untrustworthy because I didn't get to where I wanted to go or I didn't finish what I was supposed to finish or I didn't do what I was going to do. And then comes the justifying and the blaming. Oh, well, you know, I just have so many problems. I've raised seven children, four of which are special needs, you know, and I have my mother at home and she's got hospice at home and, you know, and all of this is true. Everything about that is true about me. I use it when I want to get trust building. I tell people, tell me how much stress you think this is. I'm a lawyer, married to a lawyer. I've got a mother living at home who's at hospice at home who's been bedridden. For 14 years, I've raised seven children, three of which were special needs, and then now my daughter in her 20s has created a heart condition. How much stress do you think I know about? you think I can identify with you when it comes to stress? And everybody goes, yay, yes, you do. Oh, my God, you really know what stress is like, Deborah. And I do. But then I have to turn around, right, and I've got to be the example <laughs> of the person who's of the person who knows how to overcome this stress and become really productive, right? I mean, I have to practice what I'm preaching, right? And I go out there and I make as many mistakes, if not more than most people, because at least I know better and I'm still stumbling around and I'm not being a good example of follow-through, which then follow-through gets to be related and people identify follow-through and perseverance with honesty and integrity, isn't that the truth? If you can't follow through with something, then they think you're being dishonest. 
Yeah, it's so true. And I am nodding my head up here in the north as you're talking. <laughs> I, I have to share with you, yesterday evening, you know, I was trying to do some work, I was trying to do some writing. And, you know, of course, it's, this is after the kids are in bed, etc. And I, and my brain was just all over the place and all over the place worrying about all the things that I was not getting done, of course. And instead of doing my work, do you know what I ended up doing? I'm sitting there at my computer doing one of these online tests to see how high my anxiety level is and whether it's actually considered a disorder. I love it. I love it. I mean, and it's a good thing to do. I mean, that's what we used to do. We used to use AuthenticHappiness.org is a really wonderful, um, you know, you, you, you being, by the way, congratulations on being one of the speakers in the positive psychology conference this year. But, um, AuthenticHappiness.org by Martin Seligman is a great website for people to look into what their core values are and what their, you know, depression levels are, what their core strengths and weaknesses are. And so I recommend that website as a free website to test all these things. And I, I think you were subconsciously saying, you know, what, what, what am I doing wrong? I need to find out. Am I, am I like morbidly sad here because I can't get these things accomplished? <laughs> And I think that's brilliant. I think that shows a lot of self-awareness, Maya. Of course, it's a major procrastination tool. (laughs) But at the the same time, I mean, you know, at least you were procrastinating on something positive that you're going to add as a list of your many, many talents later on. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Really, that's exactly what it was, Deborah. I want to take a minute because um, you had mentioned something much earlier. You you spoke a couple of times about millennials and generational differences, and I want to make sure that we have a minute because you sort of piqued uh, my curiosity. Do you, do you have a sense? Yeah, I'm doing a lot of millennial studies. Yeah. So tell me, do you have a sense that there's a difference in terms of their perception or the way that they kind of live out these concepts of integrity and kind of self-awareness or self-honesty? Yeah, uh, you know, I think by now you've come to the conclusion that I don't believe there's such a thing as honesty and integrity. And I didn't mean it, you know, in that way, but I do kind of mean it in that way. I'm trying to say that honesty, integrity, and and self-awareness can, can all be very subjective. And so we have to be very careful when we judge other people with regards to integrity and honesty. And I think we need to be super careful when we start judging millennials with regards to integrity and honesty because what's happening is there's a shift in values. Um, and I do, I do really – I've got a website that's going to be coming up pretty soon. I'm, I haven't quite gotten there yet, but I've got – wonderful millennials that I work with. You mentioned that I was with Human Friends International, but uh, what I'm really assisting right now in is um, with a group in India that is working with the Rohingya uh, people of India in a refugee camp, and they are youth for peace. And I am seeing the best of millennials. I am seeing people that have been awarded, you know, peace-building awards and are part of the top ten youth of, of the world who are trying to build peace in, in, in the world. And so I think I'm dealing with like the creme de la creme. But um, millennials don't feel the same way that a baby boomer generation would feel about work, about staying someplace for 30 years, dedicating your every day in and out, you know, the drudgery of, of showing up every day, getting out 
at a certain time. Millennials want flexibility at work. Millennials want to be able to do what, you know, to pursue some of their dreams. And so it all comes off as they're flaky. They don't want to dedicate themselves. They don't want to stay at a, at, a, at a job long enough. And so you've got a lot of employers freaking out because they spend a lot of time, um, you know, training people. And then all of a sudden, you know, out of nowhere, these people just don't show up for work or don't want to, uh, or don't want to work with them anymore, you know. And so they find this is a big loss of investment. You especially see this in law firms where you see, you know, younger lawyers coming out and uh, a law firm investing a lot of money and training them in a certain, you know, field and then finding that they just don't want to stick with it. Now the question becomes, are they acting out of dishonesty when they walk into a place smell the whiff of how hard a job this is really going to be and then just flake out and disappear immediately, <laughs> you know? Or are they really probably being a whole lot more honest about who they are as people than maybe we are? Because we believe that hard work, hard work, and more hard work is going to get us ahead. And what these guys have found out is that their parents' hard work, hard work, and hard work made them extremely stressed out and um, maybe even unhappy individuals. I agree with you so much. You know, I have a number of millennials uh, as, as my own kids and, of course, spend a lot of time with them and their friends. Um, and I have to say that I myself have learned a lot from them um, in terms of, uh, you know, how, how to live a life that, that makes sense. And so I, I definitely share your perspective that it's perhaps the rest of us that need to understand things a bit differently and, and not be so quick to judge what we perceive is happening um, because that's perhaps Perhaps not not the case at all. And and like you, I, I see them as wonderfully ethical people dedicated to uh, helping communities and, and their fellow their right. fellow people. Yeah, now millennials are one of the greatest giver generations ever. Um, they're you know, but their spirituality is is a different kind of spirituality. They're not attending churches and going to meetings like you know people would traditionally consider spirituality. But they are a spiritual group of people, and um, I don't know. You know, we're we're kind of talking all over the the place here with regards to integrity. But um, you know, if they know that we, as an adult culture, have gotten ourselves in a hole, and as a lawyer, let's say, are going to commit suicide, chances of committing suicide or becoming an alcoholic are extremely high. Um, they may not necessarily feel that that's the route they want to go. On the other hand, millennials are very subject to stress right now because they're not getting paid as much. They're being asked to work a lot harder, and they can't find, you know, the full-time jobs that they want. And so what we're seeing now is a kind of a dip into the addiction side of the millennial, where millennials are trying to rev it up or dumb it down a little bit so that they can... uh, they can get to work. And so with regards to attorneys, we've got young um, young law students actually uh, becoming more alcoholic and drug addicted than ever in any other generation of the world. Because if that's the career that they want to be in, they want to be able to, you know, stop the stress, be able to get get themselves peaked, peaked, peaked so that they can perform the way people want them to perform. 
Oh, I feel like I'm going to have to invite you back one day. We're going to have a whole conversation about that. <laughs> That's really, really interesting. <laughs> Un- unfortunately, we're slowly running out of time, but I, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned uh, this book that you're writing. Are there other uh, projects coming up for you uh, in the near future? Um, yes, I'm, my husband and I are pretty much working very hard with attorneys, and we're trying to create laughter clubs for attorneys to decrease stress. Um, and, and so we've we've created some some pilot projects that we're working on um, with the bar associations to help people find more natural ways to deal with stress rather than um, rather than uh, you know dealing with addiction. I am an addiction recovery facilitator, so um, one of my goals as um, a resilience trainer and a brain health coach is to uh, give people non-alcohol and drug-related releases (laughs) because that's the other thing that happens in these cultures. You know, you've got everybody going to, you know, especially during the holidays. And I'm I'm glad you asked this question because one of my goals is to, you know, invite people over the holidays to remember that, you know, drinking and alcohol and office parties where everybody – loses their inhibitions and, you know, does everything to be able to have quote-unquote fun may really backfire on you over the holidays. So there are some natural, wonderful ways in which you can um, you can de-stress without having to do a lot of drinking and a lot of drug use. Thank you for reminding uh, us of that. Uh, so true and a very timely little reminder as we sort of jump into December and all the uh, – all the festivities that come with it. And Deborah, if someone wanted to know more about your work or to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I have a website. It's, it's um, DebraNorwood.com, D-E-B-R-A-N-O-R-W-O-O-D.com. DebraNorwood.com is a kind of an umbrella to all the different um, roles that I, that I play. And it's going to be expanding very soon. Uh, I'm working with the high school program, and we've got, just as I have the Resilient Lawyer um, book that we're working on, we're also expanding on other things like the Resilient High Schooler and the Resilient Millennial. And these are target groups that we want to be able to um, kind of uh, reach so that the future looks a little brighter and happier in the workplace. What a lovely, lovely goal. And I will make sure that I include your website in the notes for the show. Deborah, I genuinely had such a wonderful, partly cerebral and partly celebratory time uh, speaking with you this morning. I just want to thank you again for taking the time uh, to join us. Oh, thank you, Maya. And thank you more than anything for helping us to remember that there is a culture of, of, of love and laughter and leadership, you know. Um, if we, if we, I think the the bottom line to all of this is that if leadership were to truly embrace life and the humanity of the people that are working for them, if they would show them, and this is really, really a big, big no-no in the corporate world, but if they would show each other a little bit more love, um, there would be more laughter in the workplace, and if there was more laughter in the workplace, there would be more creativity and less absenteeism. 
You know that you are preaching to the choir, but I'm glad to hear you say those words on the air because I could not agree with you more. Thank you so much, Deborah, and I wish you a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you, Maya. Thank you so much for inviting me. Take care. That was Deborah Norwood. Next week, we have Steve Lawton, author of Head First, A Course in Positivity, which is not just a catchy title, but the story of his life. After a devastating ski accident, doctors told Steve he wouldn't survive, but he proved them wrong thanks to, according to him, a positive attitude, his helmet, and a rubber chicken. This is a story that you and I are going to want to hear more about. So join us same time, same place next week. And don't forget, if ever you miss an episode, all episodes of Morning Moments are available on iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, or your other favorite podcasting service. Until then, here's wishing you a wonderful first week of December. I cannot believe that it's December already. Or as Dr. Seuss would put it, how did it get so late so soon? It's night before it's afternoon. December is here before it's June. My goodness, how the time has flown. How did it get so late so soon? This is Maya, and I am out. Sunday morning Still got my day job But I feel so free Baby, I go anywhere As long as you'll be there It's just you and me You shine so bright You help me see Your eyes But I feel so free